0: My thing is, I I say this in the book too, is what the cross taught me after all of this and and going to seminary school and learning some more behind the word. I'm eight hours shy of my master's degree, as you know. As I study more, the cross to me symbolizes, if you've never researched crucifixion, crucifixion is a very slow and painful death. It's one of the worst deaths that a human could ever experience. And I think that God chose that avenue to show us that our old self is not going to die quickly. It's going to die slowly. So as you as you become a Christian, then that walk starts. Your old self is going to be with you for a while because you have to. Be diligent and develop a relationship, and that's what causes that old self to fade away. And the, the practical part in my mind is daily prayer, daily reading, fellowship, having a, having a group that you can discuss and you're held accountable with to that daily prayer and daily reading. That's my opinion because that's yes. what helped me.
1: When life as you know it is flipped upside down, we struggle to make sense of it all. Why would a good God allow this to happen? Hi, I'm Sherry Pilkington, your host of Finding God in Our Pain. In early 2018, the deepest questions of my life erupted when I unexpectedly lost my husband of 32 years. Since then, I've searched the heart of God for what He has to say about pain and suffering. In this podcast, we'll discover how God enters into our pain, shepherds us through our darkest valley, and out into the green pastures once again. I'll bring you firsthand stories from women who will allow us into their authentic struggle, along with professional advice from experts, counselors, and others who can speak to what it looks like to navigate pain. Join me as we discover God's answers to the deepest cries of our shattered heart. The conversation with my guest today, John Jarman, the author of Broken and Redeemed, was a welcomed reminder of the beauty of redemption. I can't think of anyone who's been able to avoid the broken parts of this life. I think we all get it that at some point we're going to be handed some pretty difficult circumstances or obstacles, painful life experiences, just bone saturating trauma or pain, grief. At times, other people in their brokenness affect us, and sometimes our own brokenness affects other people. And John's familiar with how tough life can be, how this world wants to weigh you down with guilt and shame and lies. John is a former football coach and Marine. He's currently a professional fitness coach and discipleship leader. And as he and I were talking, I took a close look at the contrast of this man's man partnered with a tender heart for the things of God. John has given me a short answer for some very tough questions, questions along the line of how do I find freedom or a renewed life? Where's truth or peace? And I'm going to answer abiding in Christ. John uses that term several times, and it means enduring, continuing, unceasing. So abiding in Christ is how we bring heaven to us in the here and now, how we might be able to enjoy a slice of the Garden of Eden right now in the midst of pain and suffering. Since the ebb and flow of this life is sure to bring pain and suffering, then maybe the question we should be asking is how do we redeem it? And I think John's book, Broken and Redeemed, is a perfect example of how we can overlay what he's learned onto our own lives. And we too can walk in intimacy and freedom in Christ. John's story is a reminder for us that when we step through the gate, the door, Christ making what he did on the cross personal for us, we get direct access to God himself. We're positioned to discover directly from our creator how he made us in his image when he knit us together in our mother's womb. We get to participate in God's love story with us. We get to experience overcoming our pain is redeemed. We get a deeper revelation of God's heart for us, intimacy with God, his truth, and and where there's truth, there's freedom. So then we get peace, and all the while, we're building trust in God. You can't force trust. Trust doesn't come until there's a trial of some sort. And we test God in our pain with questions and our confusion. And we find him faithful. This life dishes out its weak temporary value system. But when we submit our broken things to God, to our Father, and let Him take over, He restores, heals, and makes broken things whole. And the beauty of God restoring versus us pulling up our bootstraps and making it happen is that it's not simply restored to the way it was. It's restored to the original plan, the plan God had for us before the foundations of the earth were laid, before we were impacted with imperfection and evil. As you listen to John talk about how he overcame, let the beauty and by beauty, I mean power and strength of submission and humility be revealed to you in a whole new way. John, thank you for being on the show because we're going to talk about your book, Broken and Redeemed, a powerful story of transformation and redemption, which if everything holds to the publication timeline, it's available this month, April 2022 in the ebook format and listeners, the links will be in the show notes. So welcome, John. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to speak with you today.
1: We're going to lead up to the moment of change in November 2016. But first, tell me about the condition of your life prior to that day in November, both what it appeared to be on the outside, but what was going on on the inside as well.
0: My dad passed away in 2003, my mom in 2008, my second oldest brother um, nine years ago, my oldest brother five or seven years ago and then my sister-in-law was in the hospital clinging to life I owned a personal training business and, and it wasn't doing well and so a lot of stress we didn't know if the company was gonna make it plus I just recently ended a relationship with a very strong Christian woman that God brought into my life through prayer. We lived a biblical relationship. and when I say biblical, we were together four years and, and we kept it truly biblical. We wanted to be an example to her kids, however, Long story short, our kids were the reason why we separated because they didn't accept me because I wasn't really walking. John said in first John that, you know, God is light and there's light in him. And if you continue to walk in darkness, then you don't have the truth in you. And that's kind of what I was doing. I was, uh, you know, I believed, but I really wasn't walking. And then when that happened, that was my outside inside. I'm just, I'm going, what the heck's going on? You know, why is this happening? November 16th, 2016, I fell on the ground at 3.30 in the morning and just started praying. The heartfelt, tearful prayer. Then I picked up the Bible and I started flipping through it and and came across Romans where Paul writes, I want to do what's right, but I can't. Trying to do the law, but I I can't because it's the sinful nature in me. And just that verse and some other verses just started speaking to me. And I was just like, this is what my life was. I've got to change. I've got to give everything up to God in order to get through this one in in order to have the relationship that I truly wanted. So that's what caused the surrender.
1: Would you say that any of your childhood had contributed to where you were at at the moment?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I was, uh, you know, I grew up in a very uh, abusive household. My dad was an alcoholic who beat my mom. I didn't realize I was a victim until age 40. I always thought I escaped it. At age 12, I pulled a knife on my dad and told him if he didn't quit beating my mom, I would kill him, and he left. I carried all that with me for a long, long time. As my counselor said, I put an armor on and I didn't let anybody in. I tried to control everything. Um, I was, you know, self-destructive behavior. I'd get a great job and and start having success. And then I would do something that would pull the carpet out from underneath my feet because I just didn't believe I deserved it. And so that played a big part of it. I wasn't who I needed to be. There was a lot more self-examination that needed to be done that led to this. If it wasn't for Christina, my counselor of 10 years and my spiritual mentor Scotty, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today. And the book wouldn't be here either.
1: I remember my childhood was very abusive as well. I didn't have, I think I had everything except substance abuse and sexual abuse. And I remember swearing, I swear my mother will not make me cry. I swear she's not going to do that. You know, so I... Really dug down and meant it. And she could slap me or beat me, knock me down, mm-hmm. pick me up by my hair, and I would not cry. So I won, but I didn't realize that the prize right. was a hardened heart. Yep. And so then, and like you, I would not have recognized that I was, that was trauma that was creating mm-hmm. this lens with which I was going to look at life through. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it was other people that had the problem in my life was difficult. Yep. So I not I can relate yeah, to what you're saying.
0: I think I think victims of trauma like that at early age they end up placing their fault on other people because they they're just so hardened. I think that's a big battle. Unlike you, when my dad left, the abuse stopped and it was just my mom and my three brothers. And so we all kind of went different paths. My path was, is I just did whatever I could do to survive. Single mom with four boys, didn't know where our meals were coming from sometimes. Back in the late eighties, minimum wage wasn't $15 an hour like it is now. And so I started selling drugs. I started in the alcohol and all that stuff. I just did whatever I could do to survive. I stayed in school because of sports. It's the only reason why I graduated high school. (laughs) Otherwise, I probably would have dropped out. Both my older brothers dropped out.
1: And that does sound like trauma as far as creating generations of trauma-filled decisions, because I didn't really take note that I had responsibility in where I was at until I made the distinction that I had more survival skills than I had relationship skills. Because outside of that environment, what I had learned to do was not working for me. And so I began to have to face some of the consequences of the choices I was making. And I think that lends itself to the trauma. You end up making decisions, like you're saying, I'm selling drugs so I can make ends meet or put food on the table or just know that I'm going to survive. Right. And so that's when things began to get my attention that something needed to change. I was old enough to know that what I was doing wasn't working, but I didn't really know what to do. So it kind of comes back to what you said just a minute ago. It comes back to that Mm self-evaluation. What did that look like for you?
0: I didn't start that until probably two years into the treatment with Christina um, because I didn't really start looking at myself. And then when I started to get into... I walk a little deeper with Scotty as my spiritual mentor and then seeing the spiritual strongholds that were left over because of the trauma. Because that's the thing when you're traumatized, you end up having strongholds because your mind has that imprint in your brain. And so you you can pull that picture up like that. And so it becomes a stronghold and it becomes a pattern and you have to overcome that. And the only way to overcome that is, is through prayer and and diligent relationship with God. And so I didn't really start doing a self-evaluation until I understood all that. And so that took probably two to three years working with them and then When I gave up control is really when I went into the self-evaluation because I understood that I needed to look in my heart. One of my favorite authors is A.J. Sobota. And I I quote A.J. quite a bit in the book. And he, he said, you know, it's easy to see evil in the world. But when you become a Christian, it forces you to look at the evil in your heart. Because we're 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 born into sin, and that's when the self evaluation starts. And it doesn't really start until you truly surrender, I think, to Christ. Because then you start looking at your behaviors and. Because you want to walk properly and abide, you go, oh, I did that. <laughs> you start looking at them like, wow, why did I do that? And what am I doing? And so then the change starts to happen. But that, that's where I think the self-evaluation started to come for me. And then it's, it's continued. I don't think that ever ends because we need to continually evaluate our behavior. And, and if we're abiding by what Christ says, So, because we're all, we're all susceptible to falling.
1: Back to that word surrender. Mm-hmm. Some will automatically think submission, so surrender and submission, two words that can mm-hmm. be very offensive, mainly because people associate it with weakness or, or or that you gave up. But in your book, you make it clear that you didn't give up to anyone or anything. You surrendered to the God of the Holy Bible, which then yes. places you in a completely different value system. If you ask me, so I'd say the stark, yeah. So I'd say the stark difference between the world's value system and God's is that surrender in God's value system creates a heart posture of humbleness that allows for God's revelation and transformation. So before we get much deeper into your story, share one thing that a heart posture of surrender has given to you.
0: It, love. I didn't grow up with evidence of love. I didn't know what love was because I, I saw violence all the time. And in my earlier relationships, I did the best I could. But after surrendering and, and starting that, the Bible even says I change your heart of stone into a heart of love. And and I think that's it because I know how to love now. And and it's truly because of the relationship I've had and the surrender to God.
1: When I think about that, that's a remarkable. Comment that you understand love now because. There is a detachment a lot of times that comes from Absolutely. that type of uh, background. And if it happens in the infancy and toddler years, th- that cellular level of trauma that you can't, like you get 40 years old, like you're saying, and you have no clue where that trauma came from, right. or what you're really struggling with. And how do you really get to that?
0: In my book, I reflect on it. I don't have any memory of my childhood, really much of any memory from zero to 12. I can see pictures, but I, I don't have any recollection of anything. So it's the trauma... <laughs> as my counselor said, was so bad that it's buried and suppressed and and digging it out might be more traumatic than leaving it where it is. I used to really, really want to know what happened. And it's now it's in God's hand, because if he wants me to know, he'll reveal it to me.
1: Because in your book, you talked about actually digging into that. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Christina and I started to do that. And, and one afternoon, we were doing some, I don't want to say hypnotic, but we were doing some memory recovery. And her office is a very small office, very nice. I'm on the couch in a comfortable position. We have, her and I have a little bit different views of what took place that day. For me, it felt like the room, and this is 12 o'clock in the afternoon. So it's a bright, sunshiny day up here in the Northwest. And for me, the room shrank and it got really dark. And then I had hands on my chest and I, I could feel all 10 fingers and I'm a big guy, but I could not get up. I couldn't move. Then all of a sudden I heard her voice telling me to come out. And when I came out, she said that she felt like the room expanded and whatever spirit, demonic, presence was in the room, told her that if we continued, that it would take her. And so that's when I made the decision not to go forward because I didn't want to risk her. That's when I got really working with Scotty because my spiritual mentor does a lot of deliverance ministry. The spiritual war is real. It's alive. If you believe in Christ, you have to believe in the other side because I think in the Bible it's, you know, it's demonic spirits or evil or whatever term you want to use over 50 times. I mean, Jesus casted out demons all the time in his in his ministry. And so I think he was trying to teach us that it's real, but you don't hear it preached from the pulpit too much. I think it's because, you know, the modern day church doesn't want to scare people, (laughs) but it's real. I experienced it then and then I experienced it one other time with my brother, Steve.
1: Speaking of spiritual Warfare—it It is very Mm -hmm. real. But you are right. The church really doesn't talk about it. They're more concerned with having the big production and bringing people in and not scaring them away to the point that some churches do not even preach from the Bible. They will not have the Bible on the pulpit. And their thing is, well, you can look that up if you want. So Mm -hmm. that really leaves a gap in our our ability to understand the enemy and to have effective warfare for that.
0: The biggest thing I can say, if your listeners are experiencing what I call a stronghold is a pattern of behavior as you're trying to walk, I mean, I would be praying and I would have thoughts that would just be, as Scotty called, weird, okay? Because those thoughts shouldn't be there but it was the devil attacking because that's the playing field your mind that's where the devil tries to get you because he wants you to think that you're not a child of god and you're not saved there is condemnation and if you're experiencing that first pick up the bible and open up ephesians because that talks about the, the armor of God. And the biggest thing in that armor is the sword and that's the word. And so you've got to read the word cause so, so you can prepare yourself to fight. And without the word of God, it's going to be a tough battle. Then secondly, is if you're experiencing that, seek out pastoral counseling.
1: And pastoral counseling, where can you find the solid biblical truth when churches <clears throat> are not talking about demonic influences?
0: I was lucky. Scotty was on staff at the church I was attending at the time. I talked to one of the pastors and they said, you need to go talk to Scotty because they knew his background. I think you just need to talk to your pastor. If you don't feel like you got satisfied, go to another one and just keep going. Christian counselor can help too. Christina wasn't a Christian counselor. I just found her by the grace of God. When I decided to go back to counseling because I saw this self-destruction pattern coming again, I didn't want to do it. I just Googled. She was the third person I called and she was taking patience. The other two weren't. That's a God thing. She saved my life.
1: God does amazing things like that. We yep. count. We chalk it up to normal everyday well, we, life.
0: We, I used to call it coincidence and luck. It's not because from where I'm at in my walk and looking back on my past, I can see the footprint and the handprints of God and all of the time and, and things that I didn't even know God at the time and he was still doing it.
1: I do love to hear people tell the story of God's presence, even when they were not walking strong mm-hmm. or they were not believers at the time, because mm-hmm. he is attentive.
0: He loves us no matter what. And that's that's the biggest thing. I, I'm working with a men's group in my church. I'm actually going to speak to them next month. The group's called Braveheart. I went to a couple meetings and listening to the guys, there's some of the guys in there that they're not believing what they're reading in the Bible. And that's the one thing. When I started my walk, I would read the Bible, but I wouldn't really meditate on it and start sinking it in. And I, and I probably didn't believe some of the stuff I was reading until after I surrendered. And then when I started reading it, I was seeing how it applied to what I was doing and what I was going through and started to believe what I was reading. That's when things changed. And that's when the relationship becomes a relationship. That's the hardest part, I think, with the churches, because the altar call where people raise their hands. What are we doing with those people? Are we discipling them, you know, or do we teaching them how to pray? Are we teaching them how to read. And that's the the church I get now that that's a big focus. And that's why I ended up there, because my spiritual mentor also mentored the pastor of that church. And so he started a discipleship group. And Scotty asked me to go help them with that. I work with them to to disciple those people who are coming to Christ because they need to be taught. And that's the only way you can you can keep this going.
1: And even in that teaching, we should be driving people into the presence of God. Yes. We don't drive people into the presence of God. The church wants to make sure we get them salvation and that's great, but they fall into a ravine between salvation and intimacy.
0: The parable of the seed where the farmer's throwing the seed, some fall on rocky soil, some fall on fertile soil. And so, you know, where do we, we can't save everybody because everybody's not going to come to Christ, but we can make an effort to teach them about Christ and, and get them a little deeper through through teaching them how to prayer and have that relationship. And prayer and reading is the only way you can have that relationship, in my mind. From what I've been through, I spend probably an hour every morning prayer and reading. That's the only way I can keep the peace that I have and the relationship that I have and, and keep that going.
1: How do you interact with God when you're reading the word? I question God on stuff, but how do you? Absolutely.
0: I think it's more when I pray because I'll I'll put up my concerns and my questions then. But one thing I've learned in my prayer life is, is I'll have a quiet time where I ask God what he wants me to pray for and then let the spirit speak to me. That's something that I started probably eight months ago. And it's, changed my prayer life because prayer is not a one way conversation. You have to listen to, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth. He wants us to listen. And, and that I think is one of the hardest things for, for young Christians is to sit and listen. People say, oh, I heard God's voice. Well, okay, was it? That's where you need a mentor to decipher whether it was actually God. Or-
1: well, the world certainly does not lend itself to rest or quiet time.
0: <laughs> no, <laughs>
1: no. It's moving too fast. You mm-hmm. just mentioned that it changed you. What was your biggest takeaway or what was your biggest surprise? One or the other.
0: Being able to hear the clear voice. The other day I'm praying and I said, God, what do you want me to pray for? And and it, what came to me was Israel. And I was just like, well, okay. Not knowing what, I just started to pray for Israel, didn't know why. Or sometimes it'll be praying for the people in China that are Christians because they have to hide in their basement to pray and and to read. Sometimes I don't hear anything, to be honest, you know.
1: You make a good point about taking the time to engage God. Ask Him, what do you want me Mm -hmm. to pray for? What do you want me to do today? Because that can can really lead to a lot of freedom as well. If God asks you to do one thing and you do that, that's... A lot of a lot of freedom in following him.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The one thing I do praise is that every day he placed somebody in front of me that I can speak the gospel or needs to hear the gospel because you're sharing the word sometime throughout the day. And, and usually that takes place. It could be somebody who doesn't know God and it could be somebody that knows and they just need to hear a word. And it's just amazing how many times that takes place in your day when you ask for it to take place. That's the relationship of it because I was talking, my brother's very immature Christian. And when his wife passed away, I moved him in with me and we were talking about prayer. And I said, Jason, I said, prayer you talk to god but there's an earthly part that you have to do when my business was shutting down i prayed that god would make a way to get through it where we didn't lose too much money, but I couldn't just sit on my couch after that and not do anything. I had to go to work still and I had to do what I needed to do on earth in order to make that happen. So there's an earthly part to prayer because you know if if you don't have a job and you go, please God, give me a job. And then you never leave your house and fill out an application. You're not getting a job (laughs) because he's going to, one, God's going to look at you and say, you're not doing your part. (laughs) So
1: I do know that he cares about our pain and suffering that he enters in, that he speaks beautiful things in the dark and that he he attends to us and he reaches places of pain that no one else can. They want to, but they cannot reach those places. Which brings me to this. There are just some places that people cannot go with us. And it would be when we pull back these painful places where only God knows the truth about what happened and when we have to look at them or live in them, live in our consequences, And God knows the truth in those places. Can you think of a time when you had to get honest with God? And when you did, what was God's response? How did he meet you there?
0: I mean, yeah, that that morning, I was mad at God because the relationship with Leah ended. And I had to realize my part. And I think uh, it took a while, but through God's word, he showed me that the relationship ended not because we were kids, but because I wasn't walking properly. There was still a dark side to me that I had to filter out. And so that would be the, the, the one time when I really, truly, you know, because I'm like, I did everything you asked. And yet he said, no, you didn't. Here's what you were missing. And that's where I went, oh, OK, the light bulb went on and here I am. That was the biggest one. And then the other one is probably this book. On my Facebook page, I, I do a post every day. I call it the Daily Bread. And it's a verse from my Bible study in the morning. To make the long story short, the book sat on the shelf for about three years. And last February, I was making my post and Hebrews 10.36 came up and it said, When you're doing the will of God, you must persevere so that you can get the reward that he promised you. That was the Bible verse. And then I went to work and I'm doing my cardio and I'm reading AJ's AJ first book called Messy. And he's talking about the will of God when he wrote the book. And he said, God didn't tell me if anybody would read the book or buy the book. He just told me I had to write the book. Okay, those two things happened within an hour. And I went, okay, I got to finish the book because that was directly the spirit speaking. And I'll tell you, Sherry, I finished the book in four weeks because wow. I, committed, I committed to two hours a day of writing. I was just getting ready to go to a vacation at the Gulf of Mexico. So what better place, 6 a.m. in the morning, you're sitting there watching the sunrise in the Gulf of Mexico. Great place to do writing. And then when I came back, I continued that two hours a day, and I had five chapters when I started, and I finished the book in four weeks, and it's 15 chapters.
1: That's supernatural right there. <laughs> I would
0: pray before I write, and then the words just came. I'd finish the two hours and I'd be like, oh my gosh. So those are the two times I would really say that I could really feel God. And here's the message.
1: A minute ago, you said something about you were doing what you thought you should be doing, but it, but then God calls you into correction or at least revelation that you <laughs> weren't really walking with him as strong or as, as you should have. And it reminded me of the times that I've I cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, I was doing what you wanted me to do. And then I just hear in my spirit, no, sweetheart, you were doing what you wanted to do. You were doing what you thought I was telling you to do, but you did not wait to hear what I. Now, do you want to hear what I want you
0: <laughs> right. to do? Right. Well, see, for me, I had a hard time with God's timing. Everybody says, oh, it's in God's timing. Well, I was still in the mindset of, no, I don't, it's John's timing. God needs to get on my paper. (laughs) So I lived like that a long time. I still believed and I still read and I still had faith, but I was trying to control. And you can't control the man who created us. And that's where the complete surrender comes in. We talked a little bit about surrender meaning a weakness, but for me, surrendering gave me strength. And and it became my strength that now I live by because... I understand it better
1: and that is god's value system once again just that Mm -hmm. the world says that submission is weak but the lord says that submission is powerful and it's that whole what is it the for when
0: i'm weak i am strong i mean paul said it you have to humble yourself And then you have to be vulnerable enough to accept what you find out about yourself. And I think that's the men in your audience, I think they struggle with that because I struggled with that for a long time. One of Christine's major works in our time together was she was trying to get me to be more vulnerable because I had this outer shell around me, but finally disappeared as I wrote this book. Men have a tough time being vulnerable because it's seen as weakness. We're taught, we're brought up thinking you got to be tough. You got to do this. You got to do that. I mean, it's even worse for me because I, I I grew up the way I did and then I went in the Marine Corps. So that made it even worse. <laughs> now I'm a Marine and then I was a football coach. And so I'm controlling everything. <laughs> Everybody's surrender I think is going to be a little different. Everybody's sacrifice is different depending on what you've been through in your life. When you finally come to that situation where you have to sacrifice. And surrender. And I think everybody's is a little different. That's
1: a good point for me. When the reality and I'm referring to the loss of my husband, unexpected loss of my husband, I was with him a little over 33 years. Mm-hmm. I think about. The surrender, when my inability to change my situation collided with God's sovereignty I finally laid down my argument, all of the whys, all of the things that needed to make sense to me, all the answers that I needed to have. And so I I wouldn't rush anybody through the process of questioning God and asking the tough questions. But don't miss the opportunity to heal. And that would be when you realize the sovereignty (laughs) of God. And so for me, that was the hinge that turned me from a lot of pain and anguish and just confusion about what in the world am I? Who am I? I mean, you stripped wife from me. You make you right. like a widow. What does widow mean? Right. And, and right. How, what's my future supposed to look like? Right. So just having that struggle with God, I laid down my argument. Now I could hear mm-hmm. what he was trying to tell me, what he wanted to show me. That was the hinge for me.
0: When you talk about that aspect, I think that when people are in, times of trouble and, and heartache, whatever it may be, that's where our faith is built. It's not built when everything's going great. It says in the Bible that we are going to have those. And I think it's to build our faith and to build to where we're going to be because what you went through helped you Do what you do now, because your faith is stronger, so you're able to host this podcast. What I went through helped me write a book. Do you know Tony Evans? He's a pastor Pastor in Texas. So I I listened to his podcast. I read a book. It's called Detours. And I like to use Tony's analogy. When you're driving down the street and you see the roads under construction, what do they do? They detour you around because that road's under construction. Well, when we're on detours, God's constructing us for what's ahead. And so you have to understand that aspect of it. And and when you're in those turmoils, like when I was closing my business because of COVID, I didn't worry about anything because I knew he was going to make it through. And people are like, John, what you and I'm like, I don't it's God it's in God's hands. I'm not worried. And they're like, You're not worried? Nope. And people go, You don't worry anymore? I go, Nope. I don't worry. I if I have a concern, I just pray. And Let it work out. And then I try to do my best part on earth to to get through that situation, but I don't worry about anything now. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you see God act in your life the way he has in your life and my life, it's easier to do that. I'm not saying it's easy. It's easier because we've been through it and we can, we've can we seen the hand of God in that tragedy. And sometimes it's tough to see, you know, when you lose a loved one, especially. I think that's the hardest time when you lose a loved one. When my brothers passed away and my mom and dad, it's tough. But and I wasn't a mature Christian back then. Once you realize that he's trying to mold you into what he's got in store for you. And I truly realized that once I started getting this book to this state where it's publishing, because I look back from 2016 on, I was being prepared for this book and, and being prepared to do what I'm doing now and speaking to you and your audience, because, and once I realized that, that the trials that I was going through, I can accept them better because I know he's in control of it. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that does make sense. When you say that, it makes me think of the fact that after God did what he did for me, through mm-hmm. the darkest period of my life that I have I have experienced mm-hmm. when they, when COVID came about and people were all fearful and everything. And I'm like, Hey, <laughs> yep. yep, God got me through that. That he's going to get me through this. If exactly. he takes me home on COVID, he takes me home on COVID. If, he, exactly. if I get COVID and it, I'm not going home on COVID.
0: Exactly. Well, he'll take care and, and, it. and I've had that conversation with numerous people. Cause they're like, aren't you afraid? And I'm like, no, cause when it's God's time, there's nothing we can do about it. But when it's not your time, right and God doesn't want to take you home, you're going to survive some way or another.
1: And then the real win for us is going home with him. That's where we want to be. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You opened your book with the poem, The Path. Did you write that, by the way? I did, yes. You did. In it, you say, this path led me to the edge of a cliff. And it reminded me of when Jesus was tempted by Satan standing on that cliff. Mm -hmm. What would you say was your biggest temptation during your transformation?
0: No, it was dealing with the strongholds of my past. Growing up the way I did, I had a horrendous temper. I was very timid now. And and so the temperament, the anger, there was pornography and lust. So dealing with those, you know, that was that was the cliff. That was the hardest thing as I was transforming. But as I said earlier, as I started to make that transformation, looking at those things, I started going, yeah. You know, it, it, they start becoming, for lack of better terms, repulsive to you if, if you really start to follow and abide, because you know that they're not right.
1: Do you think that's when you're starting to walk into your identity of who Christ is? You're starting to understand who God is. You're starting to understand who you are. And now you see yourself at more along the lines of who God has created you to be versus who we have become here.
0: Yeah, because your perception of yourself changes because now it becomes Who am I in Christ and I'm becoming more Christ-like rather than I have to impress the people at work because I have to do X, Y, and Z or I have to impress these people. Your self-worth is in God, not the earth. And I think that's the biggest change.
1: This brings me to the thought of guilt and shame christ Mm -hmm. died on the cross with our guilt and shame buried it Mm -hmm. with him and when he rose again he had conquered it left it in the grave he stands victorious and alive but there's a practical part of walking out the truth the truth is it can be very difficult to leave guilt and shame behind where are you at
0: the subtitle of my book says it all i'm free i found freedom through through the complete surrender because as you're saying Christ had victory on the cross, but that's where I go back to what we're believing. Because if we don't believe we have victory, how can we have victory? If we're still believing I'm guilty and shameful of these past acts. That's not the right mindset. The mindset needs to be Christ has victory over that. So I'm victorious. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And that's the freedom of, of Christianity. We just need to place our identity in Christ and then abide by what he said. and know that we are going to fall from time to time, but he's going to be there to catch us. He's also going to show us the way. That's just my opinion. It's once we place our worth in Christ, it makes it a lot easier.
1: So a practical step would be using that gift of choice, that freedom of choice that God has Mm -hmm. given us and changing the mindset, agreeing with the principles of God, the truths of God, his love for us, what he did on the cross, and then walk in that. Because Forgiveness is a tough thing. How yep. How important is forgiveness in your walk it's,
0: with God? It's one of the keys because the forgiving people that have hurt you or asking forgiveness of people that you hurt, that removes the veil. Understanding that you don't have to carry the shame and the guilt and the bitterness, that releases the veil. And then you can start seeing God and hearing them. So forgiveness is, is huge. I would say it's probably one of the biggest keys you have to be able to forgive because we were forgiven. Going back to your point is, is when, you know, renewing your mind, Paul says in the Bible, renew, renew your mind because he knew that the battle between good and evil takes place in the mind. Every day you have to renew your mind in order to be God-minded, not worldly-minded, and that's the key.
1: I wish I could remember whose lesson this was that taught me this. They were talking about the crown that was placed on Christ's head on the cross, and that that was the mind being crucified. It referenced the ram mm-hmm. whose antlers were caught in the bushes, mm-hmm. same thorns type yeah, of thorns absolutely. that the ram was caught in. That he crucified that fight in the mind and those earthly thoughts, and so we can leave those behind when, uh, again, when we embrace what Christ did on the cross. But again, I just feel like there's some practical things to do that in order to understand and and
0: embrace. So the practical thing would be start your day with in the word, start your day with God and asking him to renew your mind every day. I mean, that's part of what I do in the morning. People sometimes ask, because when they hear I'm up at 330 every day, they're like, how do you get through the day? And I'm like, well, I give God that time. So he gets me through the day. Mm -hmm. It's the mindset of preparing your mind to be focused on god and here's the thing you could be at work and something happens somebody says something and you start to get a little mad it's take that deep breath and ask god for patience that's learned behavior and it comes with time with wanting to have that abiding relationship my thing is i I say this in the book too is what the cross taught me after all of this and, and going to seminary school and learning some more behind the word. I don't, I'm eight hours shy of my master's degree, as you know, as I study more, the cross to me symbolizes if you've never researched crucifixion, crucifixion is a very slow and painful death. It's one of the worst deaths that a human could ever experience. And I think that God chose that avenue to show us that our old self is not going to die quickly. It's going to die slowly. So as you as you become a Christian, then that walk starts. Your old self is going to be with you for a while because you have to be diligent and develop a relationship. And that's what causes that old self to fade away. And the, the practical part in my mind is daily prayer, daily reading, fellowship, having a having a group that you can discuss and you're held accountable with to that daily prayer and daily reading. That's my opinion because that's, that's what helped me.
1: So good. That really is very good. Talking about how, what a slow process it is and the importance mm-hmm. of rewriting what the world puts on us every day.
0: Well, especially for you and I, because we've had traumatic childhoods, you've lost loved ones, I've lost loved ones. So you have to renew that every day because that's the only way you're going to get through it.
1: I agree. I agree. You quote someone and I didn't look to see who you cited. God mm-hmm. made us without permission, but he won't save us without our consent. AJ
0: Swoboda. So a little bit of background on AJ. I'll, I'll pump him up because I, lo- I love AJ and I actually got to have a Zoom call with him. He was amazed that I read every one of his books. <laughs> a little background is he, he's a doctor of theology and he teaches at seminary and then he does speaking. He, used to, he planted a church in Portland. So if you don't know anything about Portland, planting a church in Portland and preaching God in Portland is very tough. Matter of fact, when I told AJ about the book, he goes, I'm going to be praying. For you, because put publishing that book in Seattle is going to be. <laughs> but when I read that in AJ's book, and I and I don't remember which book it was, but I was just like, that is so awesome.
1: It is a truth that points us back to that gift of free choice, and many people mm-hmm. want to blame God when things get dark and painful right. and downright traumatic. Right. But mm-hmm. it's truly a gift that that he doesn't take from us when we don't use it like he intended for us to use it. Mm -hmm. When you were trying to take on that full load of responsibility, did you ever blame God for what happened to you? Did you ever try to pass the buck like Adam did in the garden when he blamed Eve? Because I know I've done that.
0: Did I blame God for that? No because I I took the personal responsibility. I didn't blame God for, for my abusive childhood. It was what it was. Through my life, looking back on transgressions that I caused or that I made that hurt people, you have to take personal responsibility in those. That's the only way you have true freedom from that and ask God to forgive you and the people that you hurt, you have to ask for forgiveness. As I was getting to that point, I understood that what I went through in my lifetime made me who I am today, good, bad, or indifferent. I'm not proud of some of this stuff, but I had to walk through that stuff to get where I'm at now. And that's how I looked at it when I started to really surrender because it was whatever the path that God placed me on, and this is the path. And I went through everything I did because I needed to go through that so I can do what I'm doing now. That's the way I look at it. (laughs)
1: Yeah, one of the beautiful things about knowing God now, because I know you can accept Christ just like the Mm -hmm. thief on the cross did, and you will live eternally, but there's no works based on getting to heaven. But the beautiful, one of the beautiful things about knowing Christ now and Christ crucified is his presence in the midst of pain and suffering or the uh, the ability to have redemption for what you've gone through and what you've right. been through. So what are your thoughts on First Corinthians 10, 12 through 13? And I'll read the verse really quick for my listeners. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. How did Pastor Tony Evans, because I think you referenced him in your yep, book, how did, I did. he and, up a deeper understanding for you? What does it mean? Wait, when I was
0: listening to his podcast that he, he brought that verse up, his first was, he said, I'm going to share with you the only verse in the Bible that's not true. That's how he started it. And I was like... Okay, what, what's this, you know, because right. the word is truth. And so he quoted that verse and he said, God's going to give you more than you can handle so that you have to fall on your knees and raise your hands to him and ask for help. And when he said that, I went, wow, that's good. And at the end of the verse, it says that God's going to give you a way out. Tony didn't bring that part of the verse up in this sermon, because I think he was trying to prove a point that he, God sometimes is going to place more than you can handle because he wants you to go, I need you and I need your help. Then he provides the path. I don't think he's going to provide that path unless you ask for help, you know, because he's going to want to see what you do. Where's your faith? You know, and, and that's what that verse really spoke to me um, when I heard Tony say that. And it, and it was a game changer for me because I went, OK, that makes sense. You know, now I got it.
1: And it comes back to that humble heart posture because you're teachable. The
0: biggest killer for Christians, I think, is pride, pride and, and, and arrogance. I'll say that as a man because men tend to have more pride and arrogance than females no disrespect to any of your listeners but but that's just what i've learned in my 58 years <laughs> men are very prideful and and i think that they don't want to give up pride that's just the way it is and you have to be humbled i said in in that in that poem you know i was humbled And truly was humbled.
1: So there's power in humbling. Again, it just makes that point and power in responsibility, taking responsibility, because you can shift that from being a victim to actually overcoming the situation or or what your actions were. With regard to your journey to healing, what Mm -hmm. was the most painful thing that you had to let go of? Because I think of things that I've let go of and Mm -hmm. I I tell the Lord, I'm not happy about it, uh, but I'm going to do it, but I'm not happy about it.
0: For me, the more painful was looking back on the people I hurt because of what I went through and not knowing who I was and doing the things I did and and the effects it caused on other people. I think that was the harder part. I don't list all the transgressions in my book. And that was a really tough part of the book to write because I didn't want to open up wounds of people that, you know, I didn't put names in there. But if people that were involved in those situations, they read the book, they're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. And so that to me was the hardest part because, you know, I... I I heard a lot of people. That's why I start my book out and I ask them for forgiveness. I've I've talked to a lot of them and I've been forgiven, which is the good thing. But there's some that I wasn't able to get a hold of. And if they pick this book up, then I simply say, please forgive me, because I I wasn't the man then that I am now. I'm not blaming my transgressions on my past, but it's there. It's an effect of my past.
1: And you bring up another element here with the humbleness, the taking responsibility, and now. Apologizing, Mm -hmm. giving somebody the opportunity to express to you what you did to them. And that takes a lot of courage.
0: Yep. And you just got to sit and listen.
1: Yeah. Because you can't take it back. You can't change it. All you can offer is, I'm sorry. And sometimes that's not enough, really.
0: Well, I'm sorry and please forgive me. Forgiveness doesn't take away the act, but it releases you from the captivity of the act. That's the way I look at forgiveness, because I forgave my dad for what he did when I was a child. It doesn't take away that, never removes the pain of it or anything, but it releases that captivity of it. Set you free. Here's the thing. That's what God did for us. You know, and he, he paid the ultimate sacrifice, but the ultimate pain. And if we as Christians can't do that for others, then how can we expect it from God?
1: Amen. What are your thoughts on giving someone encouragement? Because a lot of times when you're trying to walk in the new revelation of who you are, it gets a lot harder and a lot messier before it gets better. And the change actually takes place. Can you encourage somebody today who's facing a lot of painful things?
0: And, and you said it best, it's messy. When you accept Christ, your life's going to get messier than it was before. And here's why. Because because of the self-examination. Because Christianity is going to force you to look inside yourself. And and, and I'll use this example, Sherry. In my past life, before that transformation, I would not look myself in the eye in the mirror because I didn't like who was looking back. I didn't like the person in the mirror. Now I, I can look at myself in the mirror and, and I'm okay. If you're struggling with that, you've got to seek help. Because you can't do it alone and you got to have people around you that are going to hold you accountable and you got to have that group they need to be mature christians that are a little farther in their walk because they need to guide you that's how i would encourage them is find somebody who can help can come beside you disciple you mentor you and help you get through that that's what scotty did for me and and you know, I do it for other people now. I can't remember the Bible verse, but there's a verse that it actually talks. The tragedy that we go through is so that we can help others that are going through tragedy.
1: And I think that's part of the redemption of our pain. I won't say it's all of it, but I think that's part of right. it. Sharing right. your story, writing that book. I think that's another mm-hmm. part of that redemption. <laughs> that we get to take part in our redemption. I think that's pretty cool God does
0: that. Looking back, I think Christine knew that the book would be a healing part because the the book was healing to write. You've read the manuscript and the letter that I wrote, that I shared in the book that I wrote to my mom and dad, when I put that in the book, I was like, wow, I was kind of harsh, but it was the truth. It's the way I felt at that time. I almost took it out of the book because it was so harsh, but I'm like, no, I'm going to leave it because this is part of my healing process and the redemption. Part of this story, with my dad's relationship in mind, I shared a little bit of the redemption of our relationship in the book. Part of the relationship with my dad that I didn't put in the book that was just awesome to see is my my stepmom, who was who basically tamed my dad. I I say her daughter was a heroin addict and died on the birthing table when she delivered a kid. So my dad and my stepmom raised kid and he had you know some birth defects and stuff and watching my dad's interaction with with ryan was amazing to me because i think he used that as a way to make amends because he didn't make the same mistakes he he loved that kid and looked at it as he's making amends for what he did and he's he's got another shot he's taking advantage of it as i say in the book him and i had a great relationship up until he passed in 2003 um now did it start off like that? No, I knocked on his door and punched him in the mouth. <laughs> so that's how, oh, wow. that's how our mending, that's how the mending started. He accepted it. He, he stood up, wiped the blood off his lip and said, I deserve that. Let's go have a beer and talk. That's where our relationship changed.
1: Well, that, uh, that's a twofold gift. One, that you get to repair the relationship with him mm-hmm. and enjoy the last few years of it. And mm-hmm. also that he got a shot at a little bit of redemption yep. with yep. his past as well.
0: Yep. Yep. Was was he a believer? My dad was adopted and my grandmother when i was growing up she was the only evidence of christ in my life every time i saw her she'd be like johnny god's got some special plan for you looking back now i know that she prayed over me every day she's up in heaven right now smiling because the book is here and she knew that was going to happen when i was eight years old and she started saying that to me he knew christ we talked about it and he was a believer i got my mom to accept Christ before she passed. And my brother, Steve as well. My brother, Steve was a Darwinist and he didn't believe in God. Mm -hmm. He was in a coma in a hospital in Seattle. And there were some demonic issues that we dealt with first as I was dealing with that. And he came out of the coma. He looked at me and said, John, I need to be saved. Mm -hmm. So I prayed the prayer of salvation over him. And then when he was home in hospice and I share this story in the book, when he was home in hospice, I took him for a walk after we had a, a party for his co-workers to come over and basically say goodbye. We took him for a walk, my girlfriend and I, and, and we're walking down in Se- downtown Seattle. And I look over and there's this concrete wall at this park and there's a book on the wall and I walk over and it's a Bible. It's opened up to Psalms 51, David's Prayer of Confession. And I brought it back and I said, Steve, this is God speaking to you right now. He forgives you. Let's read this together. And so we read it. I went back. I put the book back. We we took him back to the apartment. Lee and I got in the car. We left. I purposely drove past the park. The book was gone. It, dis- wow. it wasn't on the shelf. And so I'm just like, if that's not a God thing, I don't know what is. I know Steve is in heaven. So.
1: That's a gift too, a beautiful gift from yep. your heart, yep. for sure.
0: Yep. I will never ever forget that day. So
1: when you reflect on what it costs you to know what you know about God now, what has been the biggest reward for you? I guess there's a twofold question here. One, I want to know, would you change anything about the journey? And then what has been the biggest reward for you?
0: Well, I wouldn't change anything. And the biggest reward is that i have peace i have freedom from the past and that i understand that i'm not alone and that as long as i continue the relationship with god that i'm going to be okay that's my biggest takeaway i share the the Last chapter of this book is called Dear Younger Me, and I write a letter to my dear younger self. And it's off of Mercy Me's song, Dear Younger Me. I share that story because I actually met Bart and we talked backstage at a concert and he gave her permission to use the song. To me, that's the coolest thing about the book is because I got to meet Bart and get some insight and without giving away the story, Bart's counselor, because if you've seen the movie, I can only imagine, you saw how Bart grew up well that's similar to the way i grew up well bart's counselor told him to write a song to his son as if he was writing it to himself and when he told me that i said well that's kind of ironic because my counselor told me to write a book i want to use your song in the book can i get your permission he said yeah i just need a copy of the book and so next month i'll get to order the books for myself probably next week and so i'll have hard copies of the book in my hand next month and i'll be sending one to his agent to pass on to him i'll put a little note in there for him. One of the coolest parts. And that's a God thing because to get, to be able to buy a backstage pass to that concert, everything falling into place for that was just, it's amazing.
1: What is something that you would tell your younger self? To
0: seek counseling sooner. That was the, that was one of the biggest things in there is I waited too long because I didn't understand it. One thing I said in there is when Mama Dell tells you that God has something special, ask her to ask her what it is and tell her to explain it to you instead of just laughing it off. Would that change the course of my life? Who knows? As Bart says in the lyrics of his song, some of the things that you did or, or that I want to warn you about made you who you are. So what would I change?
1: I wish I would have gotten to the to the intimacy with God, but then how do you yes. get to the intimacy with God faster if you don't realize you need if there aren't situations because you don't even really know what's in you until the pressure's on and then it comes up right. out of right. you and then you exactly. have to look at it and deal it, deal with it. Yep. So yep. before we close, or is there anything that listeners need to know before we part? Maybe I haven't asked you about it or maybe you just want to leave something with them here. What is something that you want to share before we part out, cut out?
0: My biggest thing is i want to share is, is to truly seek an intimate relationship with God, and in my opinion, the only way you can do that is is through prayer and reading, and and getting a mentor or somebody that you can you know work with to help you grow in your walk. Find somebody that's more mature than you, and and hang on to that person. Let that person guide you, and it has to be a a, a truly unconditional, honest relationship, just like. The relationship with God—that's what changed me. That intimate relationship, and the hard part, I think, for younger Christians, when you give your life to Christ, if you don't have that, then I think you flounder for a while, and, and you're trying to figure it out on your own. And you read, yeah, you read the Bible and you pray, but you got to—you have to believe what's in that book, because if you—if you read the Bible and you don't believe it, then you're still believing what the world says. Paul, he said, transform your mind and then give your body as a sacrifice to God. Those two things are the two most important things, I think.
1: Earlier, you said to keep looking until you find someone who's a good fit for Mm -hmm. you. How do we find a trusted person? Because there's some dark things that people are going to have to deal with. And
0: who do you trust? I think it's a a vetting process because Scotty vetted me. When I met Scotty, he he gave me a certain couple of tasks. And if I wouldn't have completed those tasks, he wouldn't have worked with me. Cause he has a system. So a little bit of background on Scotty Kessler, my spiritual mentor. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners know Dr. Robert Coleman. He wrote the uh, master plan of evangelism. It's sold over hundred million copies and it's the game plan to evangelism and discipleship. And Scotty is one of Dr. Coleman's disciples. And so I'm basically a grandson to Dr. Coleman by the grace of God. And so you have to have a vetting process. If I was asking Scotty if he wanted to mentor me, I would probably try to figure out how many people he was working with, what his background was, you know, how long has he been in the ministry, that type of stuff. You know, Scotty gave his life to Christ at four years old, and he's been walking the walk. In 2018, he calls me and goes, John, we're moving to Nebraska. I went, what? He goes, Holy Spirit told me I needed to move, and he moved. I mean, that's the kind of guy he is. Okay. And, and when I met him and started work with him, I was like, I want to be like this guy. I mean, he's got it. He's in prayer constantly every, you know, almost every minute of every day. And, you know, it's just, it's that type of person. You just have to ask the right questions. And I guess, what are those questions? It's how long have you been a Christian? Have you discipled? You know, what, what are your, ask him what are your beliefs on certain biblical topics? Have you worked with strong people who have strongholds and that type of stuff? Because if, it, if it's a mature Christian and they don't think that they're a good fit, they're probably going to recommend somebody because mm-hmm. we're called the disciple. I mean, that's the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And so we as mature Christians should be looking for people to disciple. And I would encourage your listeners that are mature to start discipling these young people. If you have young people in your in your community and your Christians, latch on to them and, and start discipling disciple them once a week prayer. Bible study and teach them how to pray and teach them how to read. C.S. Lewis, I'll, I'll, I'll throw the C.S. Lewis quote out. He said, "We're one generation from the extinction of Christianity," and because it's not being taught to the younger population, we, as an older population, have to grab onto these young kids and teach them. I hope that Broken and Redeemed does some of that because I hope it brings people to to question and and to go, "Oh, maybe I mean I need a part of this."
1: And I think they will. It's pretty powerful and. It comes from a heart that's been there, done that, made the transformation, experiencing the benefits of the transformation and the revelation. And so I think that it's going to be a very powerful tool for a lot of people.
0: Some of my friends asked, is this a how-to book? And I said, no, it's what I did book. (laughs) It's it's what I did. All the good, the bad and ugly. It's not a playbook, but there's going to be something in there that everybody can take away that they can use.
1: Because we can all relate to... Mm -hmm portions of this story and and even our struggle. Mm -hmm. We can overlay what our particular past was, our particular Mm -hmm. experiences, but it's still this path being called into who we were created to be, be versus who we have become Mm -hmm. under the world's influence.
0: You made me think of this because I I talk about it. in The book is personalized Bible. When you're reading the verses and and something speaks to you, put you in the verse.
1: That's good.
0: And I think that helped me because there, and, and I, used a quote and I can't think of it right now. I put myself right in it and I changed the verbiage. So it spoke directly to me and to my situation. And and that helped a tremendous and use that in your journal. I guess one thing that you said in that conversion, journaling is people used to say you got a journal and I'd laugh at them, but I'm telling you, journaling is one of the keys because it lets you have that thought process and gets it down on paper.
1: I have heard that a lot when I'm talking to people mm-hmm. about trauma, suffering, pain. Mm-hmm.
0: Not only suffering, but the, the redemption side of it, too, because you start seeing the evidence. So when I journaled, I had I had certain things that I journaled about, and one of them was the evidence of God in the day. So in my journal every day, I had to write something about seeing God in my day.
1: That's a good point. We can't leave gratitude out of this daily walk mm-hmm. with God. Nope. Nope. Because gratitude so, is huge. I was a, went through a depressed season, and I started a habit of gratitude, and that really turned everything around for me. Yeah, yep. So that was pretty powerful. For I totally
0: agree with that.
1: Yep.